All right, I want to draw your attention to Acts chapter 20. As we continue our study in the book of Acts, you shall be my witnesses. Listen to the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 20. And I'm going to read this, uh, this chapter in our hearing. So listen to the word of the Lord. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through these regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months. And when a plot, I'm sorry, was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, uh, son of Phyrus, accompanied him, and of the, of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. The first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a little while longer until daybreak, and so departed. They took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land." When he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The, day, the next day, we touched at Samos. The day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they had came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. 
Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him. And being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of the living God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this morning that as every single one of us in this room sits under the authority of your word, we pray that you would do that work in our lives by your word through the power of your spirit, that you would make us more like our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would do that work in us of transforming us and renewing us restoring us through your word. I pray this morning, Lord, speak, speak. Your servants are listening. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Webster Dictionary defines the verb encourage as to give someone support, courage, or hope. In Acts 20, the Greek verb parakaleo is, all, is used three times to define Paul's ministry to the church. Twice it is translated as encourage and once as comfort in response to his actions with the young boy Eutychus. But of course, reading Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders, one cannot help but see the notes of encouragement all over that speech, even though the word encouragement is not used there. The point, brothers and sisters, is this, that Paul's gospel ministry included this reality of being an encourager of God's people. Paul entered fully into the work of supporting, of giving courage, of giving hope to the people of God. The man who is known for his preaching of the gospel and his defense of that gospel should also be known as the man who accompanied that gospel with encouragement. Indeed, the gospel, which offers encouragement to every person who trusts in it, is meant to be accompanied with encouragement. Encouragement in both word, encouragement in action from those who proclaim it. We, in fact, who are traveling on this journey together, having been called out from among all the nations of the earth to bear witness to Jesus in this world, are meant to encourage each other along the journey. We are meant to support 
each other. We are meant to give each other courage. We are meant to give each other hope. Indeed, this same Paul, whose ministry example has been one of encouragement, says to the church in Corinth using that same verb I just mentioned, parakaleo. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And you can translate that word encouragement. You will share in our encouragement. This is part, brothers and sisters, of the call to bear testimony to our Lord in this world. It is to be encouragers of one another. And yet we know our tendency, don't we? We know our tendency, don't we? We, we know our tendency toward self-centeredness, our tendency toward meism, our tendency, especially in the midst of our own trials, to focus only on our own interests and not on the interests of others. And isn't it this self-centeredness, this lack of concern for the comfort of others, for the encouragement of others, that fuels so much of the division between us? We want to be comforted, and we want our family to be comforted. We want our people to be comforted, whoever we define that as, to be comforted. What would happen in a community of believers bound together to bear testimony to Jesus where the comfort of others, the encouragement of others was valued? What would happen if other people's encouragement and comfort was just as important (laughs) as your own? In the life of Paul, we have a picture of encouragement, a picture formed through Paul's own embrace of the gospel through which God's encouragement, God's comfort came into his own life. Paul is, in effect, living out the comfort, living out the encouragement that he himself has received from God. And this is our calling as well, people of God. So what is the shape of this encouragement what is, it meant, what is the shape of this encouragement meant to take among us? I want to suggest to you this morning that all of our acts of encouragement to each other along the journey are meant to be shaped by the gospel. And so I'm speaking of all of these things that I'm going to mention this morning as gospel-shaped. Gospel-shaped. And the first is this, that we are meant to encourage each other through gospel-shaped service. Through gospel-shaped service. It is in the story of Eutychus that we see this on display. Having encouraged the disciples in Ephesus, Macedonia, and Greece, Paul comes to a city or town uh, called Troas. And on a Sunday night, the believers in the city have gathered together for a fellowship meal. And Paul began to speak, and no doubt sharing with them in more depth the good news of the gospel he has been preaching. Now, it's likely that this meeting is happening at night because many of the early believers were slaves, which meant that they had no control over their workday. They had to work from dusk till dawn, and so evening meetings would have made the most sense if you were trying to gather everyone you could. So among them is a young man 
named Eutychus. Eutychus is sitting near a window, likely the best spot in the room, since Luke tells us that there were many lamps in the room where they were sitting. Remember, there was no electricity in those days. These are lamps that have to be lit. Smoke comes from these lamps and a small degree of heat, kind of like today. Well, you have a bunch of them in the room, the air can get a little thick. Some of us know about thick air, about trying to stay woke, especially after you've eaten. All I'm saying is that Eutychus picked a good spot. But what he couldn't anticipate was the spirit-filled preacher prolonging the sermon until midnight. Whatever Paul was saying got good to him. And there were no watches to check and see, seeing no objections, he kept preaching. But Eutychus, likely having worked all day, even in his good spot, became overwhelmed. And his eyes started closing. Perhaps he caught himself a couple of times dozing. But the sleep got the better of him, and he fell from a third-story window down to the pavement below. Now, the text says that he was picked up dead, but Paul's words could indicate that he was, in fact, still alive but unconscious. Either way, what I want you to pay attention to is Paul's actions. Paul doesn't just send someone else down to take care of the problem. He doesn't just stand by watching, hoping that it will all turn out okay. He doesn't just stand over this young man, hold his hand out, and command him to rise. No, there's an intimate act of care in that Paul comes to where Eutychus is, bends down, takes the young man into his arms the way a father or mother would in such a circumstance. And he holds him and maybe maybe even puts his head near his face to hear if he is still breathing. Paul's actions indicate a deep concern. Eutychus's life mattered to Paul. Did you hear me? Mattered to Paul whether Eutychus lived or died. And it was in fact this intimate act of care that enabled Paul to know that Eutychus was not dead, but still alive. Why am I pointing this particular action out? When Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders about his life among them, he says this, you yourselves know how I have lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul was serving the Lord, but who was the recipient of that humble, tearful, trial-enduring service for the Lord? It was the Ephesian church. Indeed, it was all the people of God with whom Paul had established relationship. Paul's life was a gospel-shaped life of service and honor to Christ and on behalf of the people of God. What if our lives were marked by this same kind of gospel-shaped service, this laying down of our lives for one another, this intimate concern for one another's lives? What if humility and tears and enduring trials for each other's sake marked our life together? You know what you'd have? You'd have an encouraged church, and you'd have a church full of courage and hope. 
This call to encourage each other with the gospel, with gospel-shaped service means entering into the places of brokenness, the places of pain, the places of death in each other's lives. It means if a brother or sister is sick, we offer them caring service, doing whatever is in our power to alleviate that sickness. If they are depressed or anxious, we offer them our caring presence, spending time with them. If they are in prison, we visit them, providing whatever comfort we can to them. If a brother or sister is suffering under oppression or injustice of some kind, we do whatever is in our power to bring justice to bear on that situation. Caring service means that we don't just say to our brothers, their lives matter. It means we act like they do. It means we come down to the place of pain where they have fallen or where the hard circumstances of life have befallen them, and we act. We take them into our arms, and we care for them. We pick them up, and we seek to work life where death has taken hold. This was Paul's lifestyle, a lifestyle that he testified to when he speaks to those Ephesian elders. Is it our lifestyle? Is that how we're committed to live among each other? It should be. And it should be our lifestyle, not just individually. It should be our lifestyle corporately as the people of God. Encouragement through gospel-shaped service, but also encouragement through gospel-shaped words. Encouragement through gospel-shaped words. I've already referenced a part of Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders. After the time in Troas, Paul, on his way to Jerusalem, he calls for the Ephesian elders while his ship is docked. And when they arrive, he speaks to them, giving a, a farewell address of sorts. And it's the content of this address that I want to draw your attention to in these two points. In verses 20 to 21, Paul says this, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews, to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith to our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He says, I know that after my departure, Phil's wolf will come in to you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish you with tears. It goes without saying that Paul preached the gospels, preached the word of God in Ephesus. But what I want you to notice, though, is the shape of that proclamation, because our encouraging of each other along this journey of bearing witness to Jesus means preaching the Word of God to each other, too. So what did Paul's preaching of the Word, the Word of His grace, as it is called in verse 32, what did it look like? What did it look like? Well, first of all, Paul's preaching of the Word covered anything that was profitable. Verse 20, and the whole counsel of God, verse 27. That is the message that Paul preached addressed the whole scope of concerns that God himself speaks to in his word. The gospel, by the way, isn't just a get out of hell free card. 
the gospel covers the full scope of the damage that sin has done to our lives and to the world. When we preach the gospel, we are preaching the means through which God sets everything right in our relationship with Him, with each other, with ourselves, and with the creation. And so Paul's preaching in Ephesus touched on the whole counsel of God, anything that would be profitable in deepening their understanding of God, themselves, each other, anything that would help them better apply that word in their relationship with God, themselves, each other, and the world. Paul preached the whole story. He preached the whole story. You know why God's word is encouraging? It's because everything pertaining to life and godliness is in there. Everything pertaining to our faith and our life is in there. There's an old Prego commercial in which a father is teasing his son about being newly married and using tomato sauce rather than making it from scratch. And he starts to tell him about the successful ingredients of a marriage, comparing it to the ingredients that need to be in a good sauce. And he enumerates the different ingredients. As he enumerates them, he tells his son, referring to the prego sauce, his son tells him, it's in there. Little bits of garlic, it's in there. Real herbs and onions for that homemade taste. Pop, it's in there. Then he puts the spoon to his father's mouth, and his father takes a taste and declares, it's in there. Well, brothers and sisters, I just came to tell you that a life of encouraging each other along the journey of testifying to Jesus and helping each other understand that we need the Word of God and helping people understand that it's in there. You need purpose? It's in there. You need hope? It's in there. You need security? It's in there. You need security from the shifting sands of the ideologies of the culture? It's in there. You need peace? It's in there. You need joy? It's in there. You need comfort? It's in there. You need direction? It's in there. You need correction? It's in there. You need wisdom? It's in there. You need salvation? It's in there. Paul's ministry of encouragement was a ministry of leading God's people to understand that everything they needed for life and godliness is in the Word of God. It is in there. It's in there. And so when they needed it, he just kept holding up that spiritual spoon to their mouths so they could taste it and declare it for themselves. It's in there. Second, the content of Paul's preaching of the Word, second to the content of the preaching is the tone. The tone in which Paul declared it, or the spirit in which he declared it. Paul says that he admonished them with tears. This is the second time Paul mentions his tears. Paul was deeply concerned that those to whom he preached would embrace by faith the teachings of God's Word, that they would lay it up in their hearts, that they would practice it in their lives, to use the language of the confession. And of course, this concern grew out of a knowledge that there would be those both from their own ranks and from outside who would come in and damage the faith of the church. He calls them fierce wolves caring nothing for the life of the flock. And Paul's tears were an indication of his deep concern for God's truth. Paul wasn't just concerned about content. He was concerned that through his words he would convey the deep compassion of God, the compassion he himself had received from the Lord. 
It's not just speaking the Word of God, but speaking those words with genuine compassion for the hearers that matters. I'm not saying that if compassion is absent, God can't use His Word, but the encouragement we are meant to give each other along this journey comes both from what we say and how we say it. It comes both from what we say and how we say it. There's not an arena of life where the Word of God doesn't speak, encouraging us in the righteousness of God for our lives. And we should be speaking that whole counsel of God to each other. People need to know what thus saith the Lord as they try to be faithful in their families. They need to know what thus saith the Lord as they try to be faithful as employees, as citizens, as neighbors. People need to know how to think biblically about their money, about their time, about their labor. They need to know how to think biblically about the care of creation over which we have been made stewards, the care of culture which we have been empowered to create, the care of the church into which God has called those who have put their faith in Christ. They need to know how to love the stranger, the widow, the poor, the orphan, the oppressed. In all of life, people need to hear God's voice. And as He has spoken in His Word, they will hear His voice. And it is through faith in Christ, the power of the Spirit, that we are illuminated in our hearts and minds to understand and apply that Word. So when people come to you for guidance, be people who speak the Word. Be people who labor to make God's voice clear to His people. This means if you don't have an answer at the moment, tell them, I don't know, brother. I don't know, sister. But I'll search the Word of God for you, or I'll search the Word of God with you, and let's find out what God has to say on the matter. Amen, people of God. Or I'll take you to someone who I believe can give you the answer. But guide people to the Word of God and ask God to give you compassion. Ask Him to create in you a heart that cares, that cares about people, that cares about their growth in the grace of God. The love we need to love people well doesn't come from us. It comes from the Spirit of God who is at work in us, who has poured the love of God into our hearts that we might pour it into one another. Amen, people of God. Encouragement through gospel-shaped service, gospel-shaped words. Finally, encouragement through gospel-shaped generosity. Paul's speech closes with one final aspect of the life he has lived among the Ephesians, a life of encouragement that they are meant to follow, and that we're meant to, to follow because it mimics the life of our Lord. Paul says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He Himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul's life was a life of profound generosity. Paul worked with his own hands, not just to minister to his own necessities, but to provide for the necessities of others. Paul had not coveted anyone's silver or gold, not because he had no right to be supported physically by those he labored among spiritually. Paul himself makes it clear that those who serve in gospel ministry should be supported by that ministry, by those among whom they labor. 
But Paul had worked as a tent maker in order to set an example among the Ephesians and so that the gospel would not be diminished by those who might try to claim that Paul was preaching it only for monetary gain. So instead, Paul showed by his life what the economics of the kingdom are meant to look like. In the kingdom, I work not just for my own benefit, but for the benefit of my brothers and sisters. I work not just to earn a living for myself, but to participate in ensuring that others can live and flourish as well. Paul says as much in his letter to the Ephesians, where he says this, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with those who are in need. Part of the problem in the church is that we are sometimes indistinguishable from the world and how we think and behave toward our money. We say it's the Lord's money and that we are just stewards over it, yet our stewardship at times looks more like control. Our stewardship sometimes looks more like control, a control that has us holding on to much of our wealth for our own enjoyment rather than for the benefit of others. Now, if that's not you, then you don't need to take offense. Save the emails. You know the pattern of your own life. But if it is you, if your relationship with your money is more one of control, where you through your actions basically tell God what you're going to do with it, rather than searching out his word to see what you should be doing with it, then Paul's words are actually meant to encourage you. In fact, let the words of our Lord encourage you, to whom Paul quotes as saying, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That is, the one who uses his resources to serve will find the same blessing that Jesus says will be given to those who humble themselves rather than exalting themselves. Those folk will be exalted. You see, in the kingdom of God, God looks for those who love to plant seeds, not just eat the fruit. <laughs> I'll say that again. God looks for folk who like to plant seeds, not just eat the fruit. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. I'm going to give you seed and I'm going to give you bread. The seed, keep planting it. The bread's for you, but keep planting the seed so that others will be taken care of. Now, I know what you're thinking. In the kingdom, God's mathematics don't make sense because he adds by subtracting. Give the seed away, and I'll keep giving you seed, and, you, and I'll keep multiplying the seed that you have. Well, what do you mean? If I give it away, then I don't got nothing, but you're missing the point. I'm the one who's supplying it, and the cattle on a thousand hills belongs to me. Everything in the world belongs to me. So you be faithful to what I'm telling you to do, and I will keep supplying. Not just seed, I'll keep giving you bread. Amen, people of God.
if only human beings could grasp the truth that they are stewards and not owners. If only human beings could grasp the truth that they are stewards and not owners. If only God's people could grasp the truth that we are stewards and not owners. A huge part of what needs to change, actually, is our mindset, our belief that we own our wealth, that is, our, that, it, that, is that it is ours to do what we want with. What if my driving worldview, as it relates to my stuff, was that it belonged to me and not to God, belonged to God and not to me? Then I would have to do with it what God tells me to do with it. And the truth is that God hasn't left us confused about what He wants us to do with it. <laughs> I'm not a deacon, but I love the work of the deacons. I don't think there should be any believer in our midst who goes without daily necessities. There should not be a believer in our midst who goes without daily necessities. There should not be a believer in our midst who goes without daily necessities. And as a member, as a member of a presbytery, I would say that there should be no church in our presbytery unable to provide for the daily necessities of its members. And if we have more than enough to care for our local and regional body, then we should be looking for opportunity outside ourselves to help those who are in need. And what is more, our call is to do good to those in the household of faith and to those outside of it. So what if our mindset changed such that we realized that we were not owners but stewards? There would be a whole lot of economically weak people who were no longer so. But there will be poor, but there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. Those were God's words to God's people in Deuteronomy 15. You think he's changed his mind about our care for one another's physical needs? But if anyone has the world's goods, sees his brother in need, closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children… Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Kingdom ex- economics starts with the mindset that I am not an owner. I'm a steward. And God is giving me this to steward. Amen, people of God. Amen, people of God. Paul was an encourager. He was an encourager through his gospel-shaped service, his gospel-shaped words, and his gospel-shaped generosity. We too, as the people of God, as we go about this journey of bearing witness to Jesus as Lord and King, we too are meant to encourage each other along this journey through gospel-shaped service gospel-shaped words, and gospel-shaped generosity. May the Holy Spirit of God empower us for these things as the people of God, not just in this local body, but in His church, in the city, across this nation, and across this world. 
that people might know that he is king through the way his people behave. Amen, people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise this morning. We give you thanks and glory and honor that the, in the gospel, in the gospel is encouragement. But we give you praise and thanks and glory and honor that the Spirit is among us to accompany the preaching of that gospel with encouragement through the way we serve each other, through speaking the Word of God to each other, and through giving generously to each other's needs. I pray that New City would be known as that kind of church, and I pray that your church throughout this city would be known as that kind of church. Your church throughout this nation would be known as that kind of church. The church throughout this world would be known as that kind of church. May we be a church full of support of each other, full of courage, and full of hope because of the encouragement of the gospel and the encouragement we give to one another along the way. I pray and ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.